Hi there. So as promised, this is another set of footcasts, this time regarding episode seven, categorical declarative. Uh, we felt like we wanted to help the listener to have a more holistic sense of Kant's philosophy, but since episode seven is nearly an hour and a half long, there wasn't really room to drop anything extra into the mix. So Ben has composed a set of footcasts on Kant's philosophy for you, and then at the end, I have one on human, what I guess we might call moral progressivism. We're working hard on episodes eight and nine at the moment. As promised, this is a major shift in our line of inquiry. If this series races that a thing, uh, we're a book, I guess you could say we're starting a new section. Anyhow, enjoy the footcasts and we'll see you in two weeks. has got a couple of really key ideas. And the first one I wanted to focus on are what he calls the conditions of possible experience. There are certain features of our experience that can't be dispensed with. There's certain things about the way that we experience the world that are unchangeable because they're necessary preconditions for experience. So let me give you an example. Something like space. Something like numbers, right? Um, the fact that I, we have two chairs in this room and not three. These are something like forms of human intuition. Let me try a thought experiment. Picture in your mind, nothing. And really nothing, nothing at all. What characteristics does that nothingness have? If you're anything like me, when I think of nothingness, I think of a black empty box, basically. A sort of space void with nothing much there. There's a limit to how much your brain can divert from your everyday experience in concocting the wildest fantasies about the world. And so these are the conditions of possible experience. This is the basic fundamental framework in which not only your actual experience, but any possible experience you could have is limited by. And things like space and time are conditions of possible experience. You cannot have an experience without space and time. Someone might ask, is time real? Is space real? Right? And what Kant's contribution is in sort of philosophical jargon is to say that these things are phenomenologically real. We experience them in our human experience, but transcendentally ideal. Transcendentally ideal just means are they real or not? We can't say. We don't have access to that. We only have access to how things appear to us, not things in themselves. And Kant will say, basically, that we can't do without these things, but we can't pretend to know that they are really a part of the world as it is. They're just a necessary part of our world, the world that we inhabit. And that's as far as we can go. It seems to me, just to tip my end a little bit, it seems to me that when we talk about categories, when we talk about classifying things, when we talk about species, races, 
mountains and valleys. We're probably talking about something that is phenomenologically real but transcendentally ideal. Cutting the world into these categories is a condition of possible experience. There's no way for us not to cut things into categories. We just have to do it. But that doesn't make them real, right? It just means we couldn't do without them. Our brains just work in this particular way. There's another interesting thing that Kant discusses in the Critique of Pure Reason, and this is what he calls an antinomy. So an antinomy is basically a set of two arguments, both of which are perfect arguments that reach opposite conclusions. Let me give you an example. When did the universe begin? So what you have here is you have a tension between two arguments. One, that the universe must have had a beginning because it's existing now and it must have begun at some point. But anytime you go back to a beginning, you can always say, well, what happened before that? And what happened before that? And what happened before that? Or the composite or atomic nature of basic physical particles. So if you take an atom, what's an atom made of? Well, electrons and neutrons and protons. All right, well, what's a proton made of? Well, it's made of two up quarks and a down quark or some combination of quarks. What are the quarks? And you can sort of keep going. You never really hit bottom. And yet you have to. you would have to hit bottom at some point. You would think that there would have to be a terminus to that line of reasoning. And yet at every point, you can see that the line of reasoning continues to go on. So, in other words, we reach two opposite conclusions, like the universe had a beginning in time and the universe could not have had a beginning in time. Things like free will, right? We have free will and also the natural world is mechanistic and free will couldn't exist in a mechanistic universe. What's interesting about these antinomies is Kant sees them as, and I think he's probably right, Kant sees them as fundamentally unresolvable. And they're unresolvable for a specific reason. It's because they deal with these phenomenologically real things like space and time and causality, which we can't imagine our way out of. We're stuck with, no matter how hard we try and think our way out of these boxes, we can't get out of them. But we're trying to say things about the real world, right? The beginning of the universe, right? And the, the problem is we're trying to take things that are phenomenologically real but transcendentally ideal, and we're trying to make them transcendentally real. And you just can't do that. You know, there's a certain fencing around where our minds can go philosophically. There's certain questions that we simply cannot ever answer because we don't have the we're saddled with the mental baggage that makes them impossible to answer. These are the antinomies of pure reason. And one interesting thing about these antinomies is when you're working your way through them and sort of bouncing back and forth between one side and the other, you, you get this feeling of untetheredness, that you're not really sure where this contradiction is going to resolve itself. And in fact, it doesn't resolve. It just keeps spinning around. And What's interesting is that when we talk about like defining a race or defining a category or defining a species, we seem to run into the same problem, which to me suggests that things like categories are one of these conditions of possible experience, that it's transcendentally ideal. We can't say whether it has anything to do with the real world, but reason, our, our human reason, sets as a task the resolution of these antinomies which can't be resolved. So we're sort of doomed to spin around in these circles. We kind of have to. And in fact, 
Kant, in his exhaustive sort of typology, definitely sees categories as just one of these conditions of possible experience. For example, judgments about quantity. Every experience that you can have in the world will be characterized by some kind of judgments about numbers, right? There's one chair, these are four tables, these are all the students in the room, right? Imagine an experience in which you are not individuating objects. When you're not breaking the world up into this is this and this other thing is this other thing. You can't do it. I don't care how, how well, this is Kant's contention. Maybe we could do it. Maybe we could rewire our brains somehow, but it seems unlikely. You can't imagine having any experience that doesn't break the world up into these individual things or not. So these categories are just a condition of possible experience. And the categories, they're real phenomenologically, but transcendentally, we have to sort of throw up our hands and say, trying to answer this question, imagining that we would come to a resolution, is just not going to work out. Our brain chops up the world into boxes. And what Kant's big insight is, is that the brain chops the world up into boxes before we're allowed access to it. All right? The mind structures our experience before we have it, in a sense. And so we just don't have control over it. We can't. Our minds are not empty vessels. They're not machines for us to wield, right? They are the medium through which we experience the world. And we can't disintermediate that experience. The world is entirely mediated. We, we sort of learn about the world secondhand through the medium of our minds. Okay, so you probably remember my mild reproofs of David Hume in the last couple of episodes. Actually, this past episode I voiced my conditional approval of Hume, or at least his legacy, but I was sure to recount his racism. Now, everyone has at some point noted that figures of the past, even ones we admire, have held some, by our lights, pretty abhorrent beliefs. You may recall that Ron Mallon spoke about this very phenomenon in episode 6, What the What? Yeah, so one thing that we think about think to be true of ourselves vis-a-vis people in the past is that we know things that they don't didn't know. And so we we see them as being ignorant by our lights, and ignorance is often considered uh, some kind of excusing condition. The British writer and philosopher Julian Baghini wrote about Hume as a modest, generous humanist thinker for the online magazine Eon, and he got some blowback from folks who got all up in arms about the Negroes are naturally inferior to white stuff. Go figure. So he wrote another piece in Aeon titled Why Sexist and Racist Philosophers Might Still Be Admirable. Racism and sexism were never okay, Beginney writes in his essay. People simply wrongly believed that they were. Accepting this does not mean glossing over the prejudices of the past. Becoming aware that even the likes of Kant and Hume were products of their times, is a humbling reminder that even the greatest minds can still be blind to mistakes and evils if they're widespread enough. Unconvinced by Beguini's apology for great moral thinkers of the past who harbored ideas we deem bigoted, the philosopher and blogger Eric Schließer wrote a response under the title A Bad Excuse of Hume's Badness. Schließer notes the appeal of moral progressivism, 
the principle that we're all constantly moving toward moral superiority over time. But he's nonetheless skeptical, and he grounds his skepticism with some intriguing historical facts. As it happens, Hume's bigotry was renounced by his own contemporaries. Adam Smith, the invisible hand guy, he subtly distanced himself from Hume's racism in his treatise on political economy in The Queerist, and James Beatty vocally condemned Hume in his 1770 essay On the Nature and Immutability of Truth. Speaking of Hume's racist hatchet job, Beatty writes, Of the facts here asserted, no man could have sufficient evidence except from a personal acquaintance with all Negroes that are now or ever were on the face of the earth. Beatty's condemnation is as detailed and powerful as anything you might read today. Perhaps the takeaway, and it might be one that makes you uncomfortable, it does me a little bit, is that historical progressivism is a principle we need to reject. Moral authority could have been wielded just as well in the past as it is in the future. We're not guaranteed moral superiority over the past. We can indeed judge people of the past by our own moral standards, but then again... If they could, people of the past would have every right to cast judgment on us, too. Is it reasonable to expect that a person could have acted differently given what their state of knowledge is? And so I think those are pretty complex questions, and I don't have anything um, very general to say about them. I think sometimes people are excused, and sometimes people are not excused. Mm -hmm.